I have the honor of kicking off our fireside chat by welcoming to the stage Allison Pickens, um, who is an investor and the former COO of Gainsight, and Hari Raghavan, who is the CEO of Abstract Ops and a former fintech COO. Uh, welcome, Allison and Hari. Thanks for having us, Shirley. How did you get to know each other? I'm really excited to do this talk together with you, Charlene, and with Hari. Um, Hari and I met through a mutual friend a few years ago and then reconnected earlier this year when I learned that he had started a company that was focused on operations and that I then invested in this company. So I was excited for us to do this talk together because I think operations can mean many different things. And I think he and I will provide probably two interesting and, and in some ways overlapping, but probably in some ways complimentary perspectives on that. Great. Yeah, I nothing to add to that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, I, I would say that's related to that. It's just whenever I encounter a COO who's just like, who just can put on so many different hats and can speak so many different languages like Allison can, it just commands immediate respect. And it's been an honor getting to know her and using her as a sounding board and, 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 and learning from her over the last few months. Amazing. I think it's great, Allison, that you decided to bring in Hari and suggested it because, Allison, you've been an operator and we'll kind of get to, to more of your career path in the next question. But I love that you also want to showcase other operators and founders who are building great businesses. And as the audience will hear, it's very relevant what Hari's building at Abstract Ops. So to get to know y'all a bit better, we'd love to hear it, how did you get into operations? How did you get to be where you are today? What's your professional journey been so far? And did you know that operations was something you wanted to pursue? I think it comes down to a little bit, at least for me, to my emotional motivations. Inefficiency drives me crazy. Anytime I see something, I'm like, how is this the way it works? It just it makes me want to bang my head on the table. And it makes me want to kind of like fix that kind of like bottleneck or issue. And I think if, if I were to try to boil down what exactly operations means, it's, it's actually just that. It's the identification and resolution of bottlenecks. When you're doing something 50 times, then it ends up being a rate limiting factor. And how can you actually make it repeatable or streamlined so that you can do it with 2x the effort of doing it one time, right? I mean, that's what operators do all day. It's just like, okay, I have to do this thing over and over. How do I make it much more uh, efficient? And so if you look at the different kinds of operations. It means different things to different people, and it can mean lots of different things. But that's the actual element they all have in common. I mean, back in the day, in the era of manufacturing, operations meant supply chain operations or manufacturing operations, where, again, it's the same thing. You're making 50 widgets. How do you make it only twice as expensive as making, like, three widgets? Now, in today's era, it actually comes to represent the, the repeatable elements of every single function. In engineering, it's DevOps. In sales and marketing, it's sales ops, or marketing, it's marketing ops. And in the particular kind of operations that um, I'm spending most of my uh, time in, it's corporate operations. The repeatable things in HR, finance, and legal. And I think the, the job of an operator is to figure out where the rate limiting factors are to scaling, where the bottlenecks are, and to resolve those. And that, again, for somebody who hates inefficiency, is it scratches the niche that nothing else can. I love that. Hari, just to probe a little bit deeper, you made that transition from COO at Forge to then CEO and founder of Abstract Ops. We'd just love to hear what kind of mindset did that require to shift from being the operator to then taking on the CEO role? Yeah, I think the main thing that I was kind of expecting, but was still a fairly material surprise to me was that it's kind of that sense of the buck stops here. I think 
I did feel a lot of personal responsibility and I guess duty of care, if you will, as COO, but the weight on the shoulders is ever so slightly different. There's not another person to check and balance what I'm doing or, or to verify what I'm doing or validate what I'm doing and make sure I'm not screwing up. I think that element has been a little bit different. It's not harder. It's not more complicated. In fact, in a lot of ways, there's a huge benefit, which I'll come back to in a second, but it certainly is a little bit more stressful. The benefit is the fact that CEOs are unique in their ability to scale themselves. And by that, I mean, and, and it's true of COOs and other executives too, but in general, I don't actually have to be good at something that I don't think I'm good at. A CEO has to be good at operations, right? I can make my role as CEO whatever I want it to be. I can decide that I want to be good at engineering and product. Um, not an engineer, but I actually put on the product hat quite a bit. And it actually meant that I stopped doing anything to do with corporate operations. I stopped doing anything to do with sales and business development. I stopped doing anything to do with operations and scaling and customer success because I just didn't get joy in those things. And so we have a COO and he takes on many of those things around go-to-market and operations, allowing me to focus on product building, which I found is like a huge area of passion of mine. So the benefit is that, A, I get to choose what I want to work on and where I get to direct my time, which is awesome. B, I get to exercise what I consider to be my um, area of uh, strength, which is pattern matching, right? Like kind of knowing a little bit about every function, being able to speak the common language and translating like knowledge and context across those different functions. And three, I get to hire in super badass execs who are way better than me at the individual thing. And somehow it's like, I'm, I'm constantly putting myself out of his job and somehow that's the best thing I should be doing, which is great. Well, thank you so much for sharing. That resonated a lot. Allison, over to you. Um, I think you have an incredible journey, which I won't do full justice to, but would just love to hear how did you get to be where you are today? Sure. Um, I started out my career in a pretty traditional business context. I was in management consulting, later was in private equity investing, and I ended up joining my last company, Gainsight, which is the customer success software company, after my old investment firm led an early funding round from the venture arm. And I was really excited to join a company be in the meat of it, you know, like in investing, particularly on the private equity side, you can sometimes be pretty high level. And, and I wanted to actually, you know, build things. And so this was actually a very interesting opportunity because at Gainsight at the time, it was kind of this new founding moment. You know, there was a new CEO and we only had 30 customers, a bare bones product and ended up scaling that to be a much bigger company. I was there for six years, built many different functions over the years. And you know, in the, in the lead up to our sale to private equity last year, I decided that I actually wanted to double down on one of the things that I had been focusing my time on at Gainsight, which was advising founders. Um, we had this very strong um, focus at Gainsight on building thought leadership content about how to drive net dollar retention, which was the reason why a lot of people would buy our software. And so I had written a lot of blog posts, podcasts, wrote a book, and, and that led to me advising a number of founders, both as part of my job and also outside my job. I joined some boards, started doing some angel investing, and then realized actually that if I, maybe if I raised a fund, I could, you know, invest in the, in the founders that I wanted to formalize relationships with and I could work with them that way. So that's what I ended up doing. I'm now, I run a venture fund. I'm what um, is sometimes known now as a, like a solo general partner, solo GP, It's which really just means like, it's, you know, I don't have a staff of people. It's just me. I've raised capital from, you know, other folks in my network and I, I get to invest it in founders like Hari, who I'm super excited to work with. And I try to spend, you know, all my time on, on the advising piece. 
So, you know, what, what I found is that a lot of founders want a COO in their life in some way that, you know, they might do what Hari did, which is actually like, you know, have a COO who's, who's member of the executive team or co-founder, but some founders don't have a co-founder like that, or for whatever reason, it may not make sense to hire a COO early on. And so there's some, I think, benefit to them to having like maybe a fractional COO, even if that person isn't doing work for them, they're coming with the COO mindset and being kind of a partner to them. Many founders, I, I, you know, we'll let Hari describe himself, but you know, many founders I found are, they're very product oriented. They, they want to focus on the brand, on the vision, on thinking about the market and, and evangelizing with customers, with investors. Um, and they're often looking for a kind of a business partner to support them and, and complement them. So I, I sort of found this niche in being that person and it's been a lot of fun. I also, at this point, advise a lot of CEOs on how to recruit COOs and have found four different types of COOs that tend to be common, ranging from chief of staff all the way up to someone who's really an internal CEO running the business. So we can talk about that potentially more over the course of this conversation, but sort of teeing up the idea that there's a lot of need, I think, for COO type thinking, even if the nature of the role might vary a fair bit. Thank you so much for sharing um, your journey, Allison. And, and just to probe a little bit further, how did you personally find the transition from being the COO of Gainsight as it scaled tremendously to then playing this more of this advisor role, advising founders like Hari? Did you have that kind of temptation to get more hands-on or have you enjoyed taking a step back from operating? It's a great question. And people often ask me, so when are you going to take on your next operator role? <laughs> I think I think people sort of assume once you're an operator, you'll always be an operator because there will be a part of you that wants to build. And maybe someday I will go back and do that again. I do think that that people often function like pendulums a little bit. We're kind of like wave functions, you know, if we have any physics nerds out there, like no no one's kind of just moving in a static way or in, in a kind of linear way in their lives, but we kind of vacillate as entities. And so I have my own wave function and there was like sort of a, a peak of that wave, which involved being really in the details and of, of execution all day long for six years. And, um, we, we were incredibly successful as a company, but it also, you know, meant that it was tiring. If you do the same thing over and over again for six years at some point, you'll need to exercise a different muscle. And, and so for me, I'm actually so happy to be like exercising a different muscle in the sense of working with many different companies, not just one. So I get to think about a lot of different spaces. I get to have these like really friendly collaborative relationships with a lot of people who I'm not managing, by the way. I, I love building teams and I, I'm sure I'll love doing it again in the future, but right now I'm very happy not to be managing and instead to be supporting. And, you know, in a way I actually am building a business because a fund is a business. There's actually a lot that goes into the operations of running and building a fund, but it's a different kind of building motion. So for me, I think the transition was great. I, I think I'm continuing to follow my internal calling and, you know, maybe, maybe someday years from now, I'll go back to building a different kind of business. Well, thank um, you. I was just going to uh, oh, go add, add one thing to that. In, in the year of exploration that I kind of had after leaving Equity Flash Forge and 
while I was still like in the idea maze, if you will, for abstract jobs. I just spent that time talking to people left and right, doing a little bit of angel investing, doing what you're doing, but not paired with investing meaningful checks. And it's kind of funny because you get to exercise the, the as you put it, the muscle of what is cliched in VC land as like, how can I be helpful? The problem with VCs and the reason that's become a bit of a meme is that if you're an institutional VC managing institutional capital, it's not just like the dollar amount you raise, but it's also the dynamics of the portfolio construction. And sorry, this is going a little bit aside from operations, but like if you're leading rounds, you can't just be helpful because it's a zero sum game. You have to be the biggest check in the round. You have to like own 15% of a company. You have to take board seats. And if you have to take board seats and their expectations and fiduciary responsibilities and all of those things that come with it, which means that you can't just actually really try to be helpful, right? Because you have obligations, you have LP obligations, you have fiduciary obligations and so on and so forth. I think what you're doing and what solo GPs are, I love the other phrase, which is solo capitalists, which is like, I'm a capitalist. I mean, if you're writing non-lead checks or the occasional lead checks, it actually frees up your time to genuinely be like, what does this founder need? Not what does my fund need, which is so much more liberating. I'm really glad I had that period of one year of exploration because I got to put on that hat and just do nice things for people, which is like so fun. It's actually, it's incredibly nice to just be helpful. You know, it's, it's like a wonderful feeling. I feel like you have all these calls all day with founders and you're just in a position where you can help. I, I actually love it. I would also say that I think at different points in your career, there are different ways that you can monetize your skill set, which is one way of thinking about your career. Like we, most of us have to work to pay bills. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. And there might be more efficient ways to do that in different points. For me, I, I spent six years being very deep in solving certain problems from an operations mindset. And I had written so much in depth about just like all the detailed mechanics of particularly how to drive that dollar attention. And I found, you know, if, if I just went and took on another operator role, COO, CEO, I may not be leveraging or, or honoring that experience enough. And so, you know, five years from now, there might be yet another set of experiences that I really want to honor and that will inform my next thing. So I think it's worth thinking about, you know, in any moment of your career, what's almost like the fastest, most efficient avenue that you can have to being useful to others? I was going to say, especially as you get into leadership, then you're directing or deploying something. You went from directing and deploying people to directing and deploying capital. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love this, and I'm so glad that you touched on this, as I think those of us who have been COOs a couple times over are starting to ask ourselves this question of of what do you do when, quite vulnerably, what do you do when you kind of burn out from executing in general or, you know, at your particular company? You know, are we, do we keep being serial COOs? Do we become like Hari, a founder, CEO, Allison, like you? Do we go on into more advisory investment? But one thing I wanted to add is one of the things that we've talked about as the founding team of Operations Nation is wouldn't it be amazing if more investors or more LPs were previous operators because you would really be able to do great due diligence, right? Sure, all these spreadsheets are great for projections, but true operators really know what's behind the spreadsheets, what's behind those numbers. And it just makes business sense. I feel like operators would make even better investors because you'd really be able to see through just kind of the the PowerPoint presentation. I think the converse is true too. I think making angel investments really actually 
leveled me up as an operator. Because when you put on that hat and have a 10,000 foot view into the likely success or likely failure of a company, sitting on the other side of the table is, is really valuable to try to understand. It's almost like you kind of have more 3D view of things rather than just seeing the thing that's right in front of you. You get to zoom out and actually like look at it from multiple angles of like, oh, what are all the things that can go wrong? Because that's the question. What are all the things that can go wrong and what are all the things that can go right is the question you ask yourself as an investor. And being able to do that day-to-day -day in operations is like a really helpful frame, sh shift in your perspective. You know, I, and I would build on that. I've learned so much through investing about what's possible with businesses. Like what is amazing look like? Sometimes when you're really heads down in your company, you think you know what best in class looks like, but then you meet this other company and they are just unbelievably talented at, you know, a particular thing. And you think, wow, you know, we, we should be better. It, it challenges you, I think, to think more deeply about how you can be better. As an example, I found this company recently, actually they were looking for a COO and that's how we got in touch. They are the, like fastest growing SaaS company ever. As far as I can tell, they're in stealth. No one's heard of them. They went from zero to 45 million in ARR in 10 months, <laughs> which is, just, I, mean, I, I literally, I heard that and I was astonished. And I thought, I'm not, like, are we talking about the same metric? I started staring <laughs> and was trying to sort of poke through like all the ways that that could not be the case. But it is true, actually, like they did grow that fast. And it, it begs the question, you know, is this raising the bar for what other companies need to do? What, what does this company learn that could be generally applicable to others? And you talk about an operations mindset. I mean, that that's incredible efficiency. Um, and they did it with nine people. So think about just like the incredible systems thinking that they must have. And, and you know, a part of it, I think, is the talented team, but part of it is their positioning, which also stems from a decision that someone made, right, about how you can position yourself to be most efficient with your capital. So yeah, every day I'm learning from companies about how how the bar can be raised. I will also just say for all the folks out there, myself included, and pretty much everyone who suffers from imposter syndrome from time to time, it's also true that the breadth also extends the other way, which is like you find out that most people don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay, we're all doing it. And, and so it's, it's nice to have that reaffirmation of like, you know, it's, it's like you're avoiding the Facebook effect a little bit of like everyone just puts up the best version of themselves publicly. You actually get to understand it's like, oh, okay, well, not everyone is like 10 year on year. And it's like, okay, you know, as an operator, it's like, okay, you know what? We're doing well. It's okay. It's not like, you know, 99th percentile, but it's not like terrible either. So that's nice from time to time. For sure. I love this. Oh, because so, so much to go into. Okay. Well, I'd love to move us in the interest of time. I'd love to zoom out, take a little bit more of a 360 view and let's reflect on the industry and, and maybe the role that either operations as an industry or operators or Allison, you've just brought up this. Now I'm wondering who the stealth company is. <laughs> it lit the fire in the here of all of you. Perfect. Um, Wonderful. But yeah, I'd love to hear Allison and Hari, you know, how do you think the perception of operations has evolved over the past decade? You know, how is it getting more sophisticated as you no know, code automation is coming up? Um, you know, Allison Gainsight was one of the first leading SaaS softwares and now it's like each COO it's like a plethora of like 25 different SaaS tools. Like, how do you think operations has evolved and what's empowered that scale and that growth? I could start. I know Hari has awesome thoughts on this as well. You know, I think a couple decades ago, operations as a term, I think mostly exclusively referred to 
back office stuff. The stuff that, you know, the CEO and other like functional leaders didn't want to do. And it was also considered to be, you know, maybe the next decade, like early 2000s, what you would outsource or offshore, which is not a term that I like, but you know, that was sort of the trend is like, how can we kind of like not have to do operations in a way? I think what changed that, although I'm not a historian, um, but I, I think what changed that to some degree was Salesforce. Salesforce basically said, we now have software that's intended for a function and there's an operations person who needs to run this. And so they kind of created the function of sales ops and they had this big conference and other many meetups where all the sales ops people would come together and they would learn about what their job was, how they would use the software, but then also how could they develop skills more generally in their function and evolve their careers. And they were inspired by others who were becoming more senior. And so I think that was a big movement in the direction of ops becoming an even more strategic function, meaning aligned to revenue. And then with the rise of product-led growth, you now had revenue operations, which I think people now, I get the sense they tend to think of it as being maybe even more prestigious than sales ops because revenue specifically is what's included. And, and also there's an acknowledgement that revenue is not just something that is earned up front through an initial sale, but rather something that is earned over time as, you know, individual self-serve users start to gain momentum and then they refer their friends and then eventually there's a corporate level contract and all these functions are kind of, you know, working together to ensure that revenue is earned. So RevOps becomes this function that's coordinating across sales, customer success, marketing, product, others. And and maybe there is even, you know, a, a chief revenue officer or a COO or something of that title that coordinates across many different functions. And actually, you know, I think the rise of product-led growth has also led to a number of COOs taking on CEO roles because, you know, it, it's no longer the case that the COO means someone who is exclusively internally focused, but rather, you know, if, if you're running sales and customer success and marketing, like necessarily you are going to have to be external facing to some degree. And so there are certain types of COOs that actually are more like internal CEOs. So, you know, all this to say is I, I think there's a big um, shift in operations becoming more strategic. You're also seeing biz ops as a function become much more popular. And, and biz ops varies in its definition. I, I, I often really value biz ops teams, particularly in the earlier stages, that are doing zero to one activities, meaning they're taking an idea or looking across a lot of different data points and anecdotes and then coming up with a proposed solution or a proposed experiment and driving that and, and taking something to be like a product or a playbook or a process that can be then run repeatedly by the rest of the team. I, I think what's kind of unifies a lot of different ops functions is just the systems thinking. It's like, I, I love what Hari said earlier about it, like being about repeatable processes. And I, I think to build a repeatable process you have to be a systems thinker in the sense of like, how are all these different components coming together to form an ecosystem in a way that's sustainable? The last thing I'll mention is I do think that, and thinking of this stealth company that's grown so quickly, I think they're an example of this. I think that there are two ends of a company that are being automated. There's the tech stack, the product itself, where um, engineers are automating their own roles by creating products that other engineers can use. So, you know, as an engineer nowadays at a company, 
a meaningful part of your role is assembling the stack of other products that can form your product. So engineering in a way is being automated. Um, and then on the other end of the company, the customer facing part, much of that is being automated as well through product like growth, self-serve signup, in-app communications, chat, Slack channels for talking with customers, email, like, you know, there's advertising, a ton of stuff that's being automated there doesn't require human intervention. So if, if you sort of take that to the extreme and you think, well, what's left in the company to be done? That's really the job of systems thinkers to assemble all the tools on the customer facing side and then all the tools on the tech stack side and make sure that they all function well together. So what I'm imagining you know, in the future, if there are future teams of like 10 people that create $50 million businesses kind of overnight, probably that's a team of systems thinkers. Yeah, that was really well put. I'll, I'll echo and, and expand into a couple of those. The last thing you touched on was, was something that I was um, talking about with a, a friend of mine, which was as more and more tools get built. And, and as you pointed out, the engineering function actually has this benefit that they can get to build those tools for themselves. That's where I think operators and salespeople tend to have a little bit of a, a handicap, if you will, in that it's harder for us to build things that scale us. But as those things get built, I think what you end up happening is that, for example, Charlene, you touched on no code tools, right? It's basically like an Iron Man suit for, suit for operators, right? If, if I know what needs to be done and you give me the tools to do it, it is like I can 10x like leverage myself. And that's crazy, crazy powerful. One thing I will say, um, sorry, quick digression on this front. I, I'm going to try to organize my thoughts because I have a bunch on this. First, no code has actually been around for a long time. It's just a really cool, buzzy word because guess what? One of the earliest no code tools ever was Excel. Right. Excel is actually like a, a programming language, right? It's actually like a, like for non-technical or pseudo-technical people. Um, so that's, that's number one, right? So the, the emergence of like Ironman suits that allow people to create leverage for themselves, be it in sales, be it in operate, like back office operations, be it in, uh, in engineering as well. The second trend is I think more than anything else around that repeatability, a lot of the bottlenecks tend to be around transfer of information. And so with the emergence of not just those tools, but specifically API and service-oriented architecture as, as Amazon defines it and AWS defined it emerging, that actually means that all of the work that the repeatable operators, be it in sales ops or corporate ops or whatever else, are doing, they were essentially being human APIs. And so we're actually now moving the direction of replacing human APIs with actual APIs, which then allows people to be way more strategic. And that brings me to the final point that Allison was just talking about, which allows you to be a system thinker. Because all of the go-between stuff, the dots connecting with each other, just happens automatically because you set and forget the rules. So now you can actually like look at the whole board. You can play 3D chess. You can look at all the things that are happening and line up the building blocks in a way that actually creates leverage for you and for the company at large. And I'll extend that point a little bit. And this is what I was talking to my friend about, but like he, he was building basically like data science as a service. I was like, hang on, isn't that one of the most critical functions at a company? And isn't that so like bespoke for a company? And like, it, it's not because there are playbooks, right? Like data science at e-commerce companies is pretty well defined. Data science at SaaS companies, it's like pretty well defined and so on and so forth. So as those playbooks start to emerge, just like they did for Salesforce, now we're starting to see playbooks emerge for like data, for biz ops, for all of these other things. As that happens, essentially it's moving us more and more in the trend of what Gartner defined as like the idea of a composable enterprise, right? You just have a bunch of building blocks. All you're doing is putting them together. Right. It's like building Legos. And as that happens, then exactly as Allison said, it's like systems thinkers are pretty much all you need. 
You need people who can glue that stuff together, figure out what things you need and glue them together the right way. And then you can create a tremendous amount of leverage in terms of $45 million businesses with nine people. And it reminded me of a fellow founder's point when we were talking about like procurement as like a core competency, his perspective was the, the comparative advantage of the 20th century was recruiting, like finding great people, right? The comparative advantage, and I don't know if this is definitely true, but it's certainly thought-provoking, comparative advantage of the 21st century might be procurement because everything's modularized. If everything's like turned into building blocks, being able to select those things and put them together, which is basically what procurement is doing, is actually way more important than recruiting. Obviously, recruiting is still important because the more you can recruit success thinkers, then they end up being like, you're building the machine that builds the machine. You know what I mean? But it's, it's a fascinating thought exercise to be like, okay, that's actually what like the most powerful and high leverage thing you can actually do is to figure out how to glue the right systems together to create scale. Incredible. My mind is just blown by, you know, taking a step back because I find that myself as an operator, sometimes we get so down in the weeds. We're so micro zoomed into the nano problems within our own startups and scale ups. It, we aren't always taking the time to zoom out and think about, okay, how should I be, you know, using new tools or, or new systems thinking to transform the way not just to do business, but to change the way that business is done. Um, and so I'd love to zoom in again now. Our audience is you know, operators at different stages of their career. Some are earlier stage, some are operations managers, some are COOs, um, some are founders. What advice would you give to operators as we see the industry evolve? You know, so should we zoom out? Should we focus on systems thinking? How do you build these systems building skills? What advice would you give? I could start. I do think that becoming well-versed in, in the um, ever-changing SaaS stack is very important. It's worth looking at the set of tools that you are familiar with and thinking about, is that the the most modern version of it? We're like, what are the new tools that are cropping up that that you should become familiar with. Because if it is true, I love how Hari put it, if it is true that procurement is one of the most important functions or, or capabilities that one can have, then, you know, you have to be evolving, ever-changing and kind of just fast that you are able to procure and, and learn and, and execute on. I think that especially as the modern data stack changes, it will become really important to develop skills in that area. That you, you all might know that like the data warehouse <clears throat> has become a standardized piece of the infrastructure that companies have, Snowflake and you know other tools. And as those became increasingly standard, there are many other products that have been built on top of them. DBT is one. I, I work with DBT on the board and, and there are you know, a number of others that are building on top of the of the data warehouse, it's worth, I think, operations folks, particularly because probably you all can be quite good at it. It's worth learning SQL or at least like learning to use tools that use SQL and learning how to interpret data. If you wanted to go like to the extreme, it's probably, it could be worth like getting, you know, some kind of maybe like, I don't know if you have to go to the point of like getting a master's degree in data science, but like, you know, there, there are plenty of online courses available at, you know, about data science and just, you know, data analysis at a more basic level. I also think as folks are navigating their careers, it's worth thinking about what type of 
operator do you want to be? I mentioned earlier and, and Charlene mentioned, I've written a post about the four types of COO roles as I've noticed them across the tech industry. And they're very different from each other. So, you know, and by the way, you, you may not want to be a COO, but if you did want to be a COO, it's worth thinking about what kind do you want to be? You know, do you want to be like a sort of type one COO, which I define as a chief of staff? It might be like, you know, a, a generalist biz ops type person that likes working really closely with a CEO, not necessarily managing a large team, but, you know, wearing your CEO hat and thinking through you know, how to systematize things that um, are strategically important. Type two is more about being a CFO plus. So having a really strong financial depth, but then being able to manage certain ops functions on, on top of it. Type three, I think of as being like a chief journey officer or more commonly known as you know, CRO, or sometimes it, it does have a COO title where you're managing all the revenue generating functions and probably a rev ops function as well and ensuring that there's a strong customer journey orchestrated across all of those. And then type four COO is essentially an internal CEO. You're running a lot of the business, in some cases, maybe all of it, particularly if you have like the president title, but in more cases, you might be managing everything except product and engineering, which is where many technical founders especially tend to be strong and they they focus there. So depending on, on which of these avenues you wanted to take, you might develop a different skill set that pertains specifically to that area. Wonderful. And Hart, <laughs> what advice would you give, you know, especially this great systems thinking uh, skill set that you brought up? What are your thoughts? Do you agree, disagree with Allison? I think the second half of uh, what Allison was talking about around the roles, I think that's spot on. Uh, I haven't actually read the blog post, um, but like as she said each one, I was like, yep, 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 that totally like makes sense. Uh, a separate topic of conversation because this, this is about operators, but I was going to say the same exact archetypes I think can actually be applied to CEOs too, because I think there are like CTO CEOs, uh, sorry, CTO CEOs, like COO CEOs, CRO CEOs, and so on and so forth. So that's a whole other fascinating uh, discussion. And I think you need to have complementary relationships between those, right? Like if you have a CEO CEO and a COO CEO, like you're just like buttheads all the time. So um, that, I think that's an important consideration. I think specifically related to what uh, Allison was saying, but what a friend of mine who's a CFO said, he puts it a little more cynically than I would, which is, I don't believe CEO is a real role. Right. But he, what he's actually getting at is what you're getting at, Allison, which is like, there are many archetypes of this, right? It's, it's used in a very general sense. He's like, what is actually happening is you're being a CFO, but you have this title, right? You're being a CRO, but you have this title and so on and so forth. And I think it's really important if you are becoming a CEO specifically that you have the right symbiotic relationship with the CEO. And if you don't have that, it's extremely likely that it's not going to go well, right? Because like it or not, the company's being built around them in a large manner of speaking, right? It's, it's seldom the case the company's being built around the CEO and the CEO can be slaughtered in. It's usually the other way around. So I think figuring out what that mutual relationship is, is absolutely essential. And if that's not symbiotic, if that is conflicting or, or confrontational, that can be not a great recipe. Now, now, not looking at the peer or the upward relationship, but rather at the reporting relationships you have, I think the hardest thing that I've personally found is like kind of like learning to trust people. And it's really hard to shake this sense of like, oh, if you want to do something right, do it yourself. The solution to that, at least for me, was just like experience to a certain extent, realizing that, oh, if things break, it's not that bad. None of the stuff is like the end of the world. Like, you know, we are playing with people's lives for the most part, right? Um, the, the, it's like, oh, okay, that's a customer churn. That sucks, but it's like not the end of the world. Or, or like, you know, you, you have, um, some miscommunication, but it's not the end of the world. It's like people with good intent, like working on 
things and working hard and trying to get stuff done. It's like, it, it's kind of like, okay, you just encounter enough things going wrong and it's okay for things to break. And so when you do that, you start to realize that, okay, if I want to have any form of sanity in my life, I need to create leverage for myself and trust the people that you're working with. Because even like, if it goes right 90% of the time, the last 10%, like, it's just fine, right? If 50% of things are going wrong, then you have a problem on your hands. But if you're trying to be perfectionist and trying to be like every single thing has to go perfectly, it's just a recipe for burnout and like unhappiness, frankly. So like, that's the other thing. I mean, I used to be super, super burned out uh, when I was a COO and I was kind of not a great version of myself. I was not pleasant to work with. And I, and I knew that at the time and I apologized for it. I was like, I'm so sorry. Uh, I am better than this. I, I'm, I know I'm not really being like fun to be around right now, but realizing now that it's like, just let go. It just is like, it'll be okay. It'll all be fine. Actually has been really um, relieving in terms of making your peace with the fact that again, we're not playing with lives. Things will break and that's okay. And create leverage for yourself and enjoy the journey. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I feel like we could just listen to both you, Hari and Allison for hours and hours. Um, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up here. Um, but I just wanted to reflect upon so much of what you shared. And I think if we could tie a, a, a red bow on everything you shared, it's it seems like operators really have to have be balanced, right? So we need to be thinking about nano problems, but also macro issues. We need to have strong IQ. We also have to have strong EQ. Um, we need to be focused on things and processes and operational efficiency, but we also need to be focused on people and focus on ourselves. But I'd love to just give you um, maybe 30 seconds to just also um, express gratitude. So just wrap it up first with Hari and then with Allison. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for? Yeah, I mean, even if the day-to-day, week-to-week sometimes is up and down, as will always be the case, you know, highest highs and lowest lows, as Elon Musk put it, um, it, I think whenever I zoom out for a hot second, there's nothing else I could be doing with my life that's better than this, right? It's, it's just like, it, it really does feel like it's one of those things where you connect the dots looking backwards to like sort of misquote, um, uh, I think, Steve Jobs' commencement speech once. But it's like, I, I'm, it feels like I'm supposed to be here. It feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life, which is a really gratifying feeling. I cannot imagine anything else I should be doing that would be a more fit calling, a, a better fit for me, which is kind of awesome. Um, for me, I'm, I'm super appreciative of family right now. Um, I was celebrating Thanksgiving last week with family, um, where I'm from in Pennsylvania. And actually, because my daughter got sick, we ended up staying here a bit longer than expected. So right now we have uh, grandma taking care of baby. I'm camped out in my my brother's um, attic office because <laughs> he's traveling today. Um, so I'm I'm just really grateful with you know all all the support from family and and the love. Wonderful. Well, I can't thank y'all enough, Allison and Hari. We were so honored and so thrilled that you could join us. So much to learn from. And I really, I'm confident when I say that the rest of our attendees really benefit so much from hearing your thoughts and and learning from your experiences. So a huge thank you.